passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In June 2011, uh, a YouTube video was released, and it shows uh, the bullying of a 68-year-old bus monitor by a number of teenagers. And this bus monitor, monitor was cursed uh, as a widow and as a grandmother for over 10 minutes in this video. It's just a despicable video where the teens threatened to hurt her. Uh, they call her old, poor, fat, an elephant, a troll. They call her more things. They, they say that her entire family committed suicide because they didn't want to be anywhere near her. And this video had two million views in just two days. And as you can probably imagine, as people were watching this video, they were responding with outrage. How on earth could these teenagers respond or act in such a way? What was wrong with them? In, in November of 2011, probably the worst sports scandal in history came out, and that was when the Penn State University assistant coach uh, was accused of sexually abusing several boys who were a part of his charity. Not only were people looking at just the wickedness of this one man, but they were wrestling with how our culture provided the atmosphere where football was prized so much that something like this could happen. Last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through Genesis. We've been in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And as we end Genesis 2, we see this picture of the world that is perfect. It's a beautiful picture where God says it is very good over his creation. It is a masterpiece. It's working together in perfect harmony to give him glory and honor and worship as the God who created it. But as all of us are well aware, this perfect picture didn't last long. We are living in a world that is far from this perfect one. We live in a world that is broken, where terrible things happen, where evil exists, where suffering is common. And we wonder why. We experience this frustration internally when we are, work, when we are meeting with other people and, and we do something that we later regret and we take a step back and say, what on earth did I just do? That's not like me. We experience this externally when we're hurt by those who are around us. And we see it in nature. Even this weekend as the East Coast is getting, plummeted, uh, getting pummeled by uh, what seems to be a hurricane. And, and up to 65 million people have been uh, affected by this. We live in a broken world. And Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 remind us that that's not the way it was supposed to be. That's not what God intended for us. And so we have to ask, how did we get from this paradise, this crown jewel of God's creation to where we are today? Genesis 3 answers that question. Genesis 3 tells us of the decisive event in human history that changes the world forever. 
It helps us to understand the evil of those teenagers in the YouTube video. It helps us understand the internal evil that we wrestle with, the external things that we see around us, the brokenness of nature. All can be explained in Genesis chapter 3 because Genesis 3 explains the origin of and the problem of sin. Sin is a common word in the church, it seems like. We use it a lot. But if we're honest, we might not fully know what it means. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at what sin is. But, but before we do that, I think it's just a, appropriate to, to lay out some, some groundwork for what sin is. Sin is most basically a poison. It is taking something that is good and ruining it. It is the desecration of God's good creation. Our hearts have been poisoned. The hearts of others have been poisoned. Our world has been poisoned by sin. We have been set into direct opposition to God. And because we are directly opposed to God, we are separated from Him. At the most basic level, that's what sin is. It is a poison that separates us from God. We see how this poison enters into the world in Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible, as we continue working our way through this uh, book of the Bible. And we're just going to read verse 1 here at the start. So please follow along as I read aloud Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This chapter starts with a bang. Remember, this is right after God has created Adam and Eve. It says that they were in the garden and they were naked and they were not ashamed and, and everything was good in God's creation. And then we have this word now. The word now points us to the future. It's telling us, you know, something's going to happen. Something significant is about to happen in this perfect paradise that God had made. And so we're introduced to this new character, the snake or the serpent. In the book of Revelation, as we read that, we are told that this serpent is Satan. It's the enemy of God. That, that's not in Genesis. This is not in our text here. But we can see clearly from our text that this serpent is opposed to God. He is not on God's side. He is directly opposed to God. And so he calls into question God's words. I also think it's interesting here how the author of Genesis spends a great deal of time focusing on the creatureness of this serpent. Notice what it says here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's a reminder to us that the serpent, that Satan is a created being. And I think sometimes in our culture, we have a tendency to think of God and Satan as equally uh, powerful beings in our culture. That they might be diametrically opposed to one another, but they are equally powerful. They were equally all-knowing. 
that they are both able to do whatever they want, and the only thing that separates the two of them is a coin flip. But Genesis 3, as we see the introduction of evil to God's perfect world, reminds us that God is the one who's in charge. That the snake is not all-powerful. That the serpent is not all-knowing. That he will be held accountable for his actions, just like the rest of creation. And so the serpent begins having a conversation with Adam and Eve, but just focusing on Eve for now. And, And in his conversation with Eve, he begins to cast doubt on the word of God. Notice the words, how he starts here. He says, did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say? He casts doubt on the goodness of God. It's in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2, we see this picture of who God actually is. We see that God is all-powerful, that God is loving, that he is creative, that he enjoys his creation, that he created each of us to live with him and to rule over creation with him. And yet we get to Genesis 3 and we have this serpent casting doubt onto everything that we just learned about God. Forcing Adam and Eve to ask questions of God's character. Asking if God really is good. If God really is trustworthy. He says with disdain, I can't believe that God would do such a thing. That God would withhold some of his creation from you. God is not benevolent, but God is malicious. He is not to be trusted in the eyes of the serpent. And I I just want to take a moment right now at the beginning here and and ask, how often do we do the same thing in our own lives? How often do we find ourselves wondering if God is good? Wondering if God can be trusted? If he really has our best interests in mind? If he's holding out for us? And to be honest, The serpent works in the exact same way today as he did thousands of years ago. We already see the root of sin, doubting God's word, not trusting in the goodness of God. The root of sin is a doubt in God's word. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The woman responds, trying to portray the proper picture of who God is, trying to correct the serpent, saying, no, God is trustworthy, that God is good. He has given us so much. All of the things that are in this garden, except for one, God has given to us. But in her attempt to articulate the goodness of God, she gets something crucial wrong. To understand this, let's jump back to to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where God gives us the command to not eat of the tree. He says this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the command that God has given to the woman, but notice what she adds to it. She says, We shall not eat of it, nor shall we touch it. God never prohibited Adam and Eve from touching the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we can see here, even though the woman has different motives, she's desiring to 
really defend the character of God. She's treating the words of God in the exact same way that the serpent is. She's treating them as things that can be adjusted, things that can be twisted, can be added onto, that can be changed. On the one hand, you have the serpent who subtracts from the word of God or calls us to doubt it. And then you have the woman on the other hand who looks at the word of God as something that must be added to, that it is incomplete. Now, this man-made prohibition, this calling to not touch the fruit, uh, honestly, uh, it's a good idea, in my opinion. Uh, Stay as far away from temptation as you possibly can. I I understand that. But calling this man-made prohibition God's word is wrong. And it honestly sets her up for failure later. Later, when she builds up the nerve to actually pick the fruit from the tree. She grabs it and nothing happens to her. She begins to think, well, okay, if God was wrong about that, then he must be wrong about eating it too. And so she takes a bite of it. But of course, her premise was wrong from the very beginning. God never said anything about touching. God only was focused on eating. Again, I I wonder how often we do the same thing with the word of God, that we trifle with it, that we, we mess with it, we change it, we, we don't count it as something that is to be completely trustworthy. The conversation continues in verse 4. The serpent responds, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In Genesis Chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent casts doubt on the word of God, calls into question God's character by saying, did God really say, I can't believe that God actually would do that to you. But here, he just flat out denies the word of God. We already read chapter 2, verse 17, where God says, you will die if you eat of this fruit. In contrast, the serpent says here, you will not die. You will not die die. He again portrays God as someone who can't be trusted. He's saying, you know what? God is holding out on you. If you eat of that tree, you will become like him. He's nervous that you will become like him. So you should eat of it. Take what God is holding back from you. Of course, the great, great irony of this is Adam and Eve were already like God. They were already created in God's image. There was no need to grab more. But they weren't just satisfied with being like God. No, they weren't satisfied with being like God. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be God. They wanted more than what God had given them. And so they decided that they were going to do what they could to make sure that that happened. They wanted to be God. They weren't content with ruling alongside of God. They wanted to rule alone over their lives, over creation, over everything. They didn't want God in the picture. They said, that is what we want. God is not someone to be trusted. And here again, we see the root of sin. It is dethroning God. Dethroning God off of the throne of our lives off of the throne of this world. And and honestly, how often do we do the same thing? We don't like what God has to say, and so we kick him off the throne of our lives. 
we dethrone him and, and crown ourselves in his place. We don't want what God has to tell us. And so we decide that we're going to choose something else. We're going to do things our way. That we have a better idea of how things should work than God does. And so just like Adam and Eve, we dethrone God. We choose our wants and our desires over God and his wants and his desires. The man and woman, they don't learn this. But it is vital that we must. That we must understand that God does not call us to trample his word, but instead to trust in it. And these verses, honestly, they are reminding us, uh, I think, of one thing. The root of sin primarily is ignoring God's word. It is ignoring God's word. That's true in the garden. That's true today, too. Sin is not far away when we choose to ignore the words of God. Sin is knocking at the door when we thumb up our noses at the word of God. And so ask yourself, are you ignoring his commands? Are you doubting his goodness? Are you doubting the picture of God that the word of God paints? Do you think that God has it out for you in your life? Or on the other side, are you trusting the word of God? Are you clinging to it? Are you rejoicing in the picture of God that it portrays? Frankly, the inverse is true. If we are more susceptible to sin, if we are doubting the word of God, if we are trusting the word of God, we are more resistant to sin. That doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless. But it's easier for us to rejoice in the goodness of God. It's easier for us to trust God when we are spending time in his word. When we hold fast to his word. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now for some reason, uh, they decided that the, the serpent was trustworthy and the God who made them wasn't. I don't, I don't understand why. And there's a great irony here. They choose to disobey the God who rules over them and instead decide to listen to one of the creatures that they are created to rule over, the serpent. All because they wanted to reign in God's place. And this verse tells us something important as we look at verse 6. Many people wonder why the serpent talks to Eve, why she doesn't talk to Adam. It just gets even more perplexing when you see in verse 6 that Adam is standing there the entire time. That Adam is with her, silent, the entire time that she is talking to the serpent. A lot of people say, well, Genesis chapter 3 is a, a very sexist passage that portrays women in a very poor light. Honestly, it doesn't portray men in the greatest light either. Adam is passive. He is letting his wife be led astray. If the sin of Eve here is one of commission, committing something that she shouldn't have done, the first sin of Adam is omission, omitting to do something that he should have done in the first place. He should have stepped up and corrected his wife. He should have told the serpent to leave. But he shirks his duty. And as we can see, everything falls apart. 
Now, this is just speculation, but I think the reason why the serpent talks to Eve instead of to Adam is because of Genesis 2, verse 17. we come back to that a couple times. In 2.17, we have the command that is given to Adam to not eat of the tree. Eve hasn't been created yet. God gives the command directly to Adam, and Eve only hears it through Adam. I think the serpent realized that it was going to be easier for him to convince someone who heard God's word secondhand as opposed to someone who heard God's word directly from the source. And again, we can stop and we can ask ourselves, are we doing the same thing? Are we finding ourselves, we're only getting God's word secondhand, or are we spending time in this book? Are we spending time in fellowship with God through his word? Or is the only time that we are hearing the words of good, God while good on Sunday mornings or through podcasts throughout the week? We must cling to the word of God. Let's keep looking at, at Genesis chapter uh, 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know, after they eat the fruit, what the serpent had promised, that their eyes would be opened, does come true. Of course, it's just not in the way that they expected. They expected to become gods and instead their eyes were open and they saw their own nakedness. And they were filled with shame. When we talked about sin being something that poisons something that is good, in Genesis 2, verse 25, nakedness is seen as something that is good, and now it is seen as something that is bad. What God had created as good has been poisoned because of sin. And it reveals to us the influence of sin. What sin does to Adam and to Eve, but also what sin does to every single one of us. Every single one of us without Christ, finds ourselves in the exact same situation Adam and Eve are in at this moment. So what does sin do to us? Well, let's take a brief look at other passages in Scripture as, as they describe the evil of sin. First, those who are in sin are encountering or are spiritually dead. Death is a part of sin. Death enters the world after chapter 3, verse 7 here. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead without Christ. Not only is death a part of sin, but also darkness is a part of sin. Ephesians four seventeen. Now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This word futility talks about the purposelessness, the meaninglessness, the darkness of our minds. Unable to comprehend good from evil. But not only is it death and darkness, we also see hardness of hearts. A refusal to follow God. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Because of sin, we find ourselves dead in darkness with hard hearts, unable to change ourselves. But that's not it. We also find ourselves in bondage 
enslaved. The irony of Genesis chapter 3 is Adam thought he was winning his freedom and instead he becomes a slave. Romans chapter 6 verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Without Christ, we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to the evil desires of our hearts. We could go on and on, but I just want to nail one more, and that is blindness. As Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, they were also closed to important things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the state of every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live. That's the state where we once were until Christ came. One author puts it this way. You see, sin is not first an intellectual problem. Yes, it does affect my intellect as it does all parts of my functioning. But sin is first a moral problem. It is about my rebellion against God and my quest to have for for myself the glory that is due to him. Sin is not first about the breaking of an abstract set of rules. Sin is first and foremost about breaking relationship with God. And because I have broken this relationship, it is then easy and natural to rebel against God and his rules. Another author puts it this way. Sin is simply substituting ourselves in the place of God. Sin is simply substituting ourselves in the place of God. We desire his place of authority and so we decide to take it. Last week... We saw these two different trees in the garden. The tree of life representing dependence upon God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil representing independence from God. Removing him from our lives. Thinking that we are better off without him. That we don't need him. Sin is dethroning God and crowning ourselves in his place. Probably one of the most powerful poems out there is the poem Invictus. Many of you have probably heard this one. Um, And I think that this is the perfect description of sin. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those words... Those last two phrases there. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sin in a nutshell. And I understand the context of why this poem was written. And and that's not the initial context. But it is. uh, It's so perfect for understanding sin. 
It's so perfect for understanding our desire to get rid of God. We don't want him to be the masters, master of our faith. We don't want him to be in charge of our souls. We want that for ourselves. We want him out of the picture so we can be the master of our faith, so we can be the captain of our souls. That is sin. That is the choice that Adam and Eve made. And that's the choice that faces each and every one of us, each and every day, to choose to dethrone God or to submit to him, to choose to follow him or to make our own way. Friends, this is the thing, this is the the situation that Adam and Eve found themselves in. And these verses remind us, as we see the results of their choice, the enticements of sin will always fail. The enticement of sin will always fail us. Crowning ourselves as God's replacement may seem good, may look good in the moment, but the momentary pleasures will pass. As Adam and Eve soon discover, those enticements, those pleasures fail. And so in response to their sin, Adam and Eve decide to to just handle their sin on their own. First, they attempt to hide from God. In verse 8, it says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Sin results in shame. Sin results in a fear of the holy I'm reminded of of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he's standing before God and all he can say is, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I have to believe that Adam and Eve in the garden were saying the exact same thing. Woe is me. And so they decided to hide from God. They exchanged communion with God, fellowship with God, for running from God. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you, not eat, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I love God's response here. God responds to the sin of Adam and Eve with compassion. He knows exactly where they're hiding. God, nothing is hidden from God. He could have come out and just demanded, why are you hiding or why did you eat of the tree? But instead, he provides them with the chance to repent. He asks them where they are, but they refuse. We see their response in verses 12 and 13. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man, rather than taking responsibility for his actions, chooses to blame others. He chooses to blame his wife, saying, Well, it's her fault. She's the one who gave it to me. But not only does he blame the woman, he also blames God. Notice what he says here. The woman, by the way, you gave her to me, God. She's the one who gave me the fruit of the tree. He's focusing, he's shifting the blame from himself to others. 
to the woman and to God, and his wife follows suit by shifting the blame to the serpent. We do the same thing. We try to deal with our sin on our own so often. We try to handle it on our own. We try to hide it from God. We try to cover it up like Adam and Eve try to cover it up with fig leaves. We try to blame others for our sin. And yet Genesis 3 is clear. We cannot deal with the sin on our own. We cannot deal with our sin on our own. There's no way to hide it from God. There's no way to cover it up, to make amends for it. There's no way for us to blame others. And so ask yourself, why do we even try? There is no way for us to deal with sin on our own. This is made abundantly clear to Adam and Eve in the next few verses. The sin is beyond their capacity to fix. And, and this next section, verses 14 through 19, extremely powerful. We don't have time to go in depth. So we're just going to read it and then we're going to highlight a couple things. So this is verses 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These curses here give us a lot of information. Just a couple things. First, we see because of sin... The blessings of God are now seasoned with curses. The blessings of God are now seasoned with curses. In Genesis chapter 1, God blessed Adam and Eve for childbearing. He said, this is going to be a gift to you. And yet when we look at Genesis chapter 3 in verse 16, that this blessing is now mixed with extreme pain and toil. In Genesis chapter 1, God gives Adam and Eve the great joy that is food. And yet in Genesis 3, verse 18, we see that that joy is now mixed with pain and toil. God's blessings are now seasoned with curses. Second, we see all of creation is corrupted. Not just Adam and Eve are affected by this, but all of creation. In verse 17, the ground is cursed because of Adam. In verse 18, it tells us that it's going to bear thorns and thistles because of Adam. All of creation is affected because of sin. Another thing, in verse 16, interpersonal relationships are affected. There is strife and disunity between Adam and Eve because of sin. In verse 19, we see the meaninglessness of life. Sometimes life can just seem meaningless. This nihilistic worldview of just throwing our hands up and saying, what's the point? Comes into existence because of sin. 
And these verses make very clear that sin corrupts all that we see. Sin corrupts all that we see. There's not a square inch of creation that is able to escape the effect of sin. Sin has corrupted all that we see. And you might be thinking, well, that's the final note of this passage. That's how God focuses. He he focuses on the ruined heap of his creation. Adam and Eve were able to ruin everything. And that God responds in judgment. Praise God it doesn't end there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. This verse might seem a little out of place. Just doesn't seem to fit in. But, but when we look at it, we realize that it is radically good news for us. Because in verse 19, God is talking about death. About how now death is a part of his creation. And yet in verse 20, we see life. The Hebrew word Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life. God, even as he brings death on his creation, brings life. Brings hope in the midst of the darkness. That's verse 20. The good news doesn't stop there. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God takes a look at the pathetic fig leaf clothing that Adam and Eve have, have formed and made them, their cell, themselves and, and says, all right, I can do better than that. And so he clothes them. And he clothes them with animal skins. Again, radically good news. God had said that death would be a part of eating from the fruit of the tree. And indeed, Adam and Eve do die later on down the road. And they did die spiritually at that moment. But they didn't die immediately. Animals did. Here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we have the first sacrifice. The first death of a part of God's creation. And it's because of the sin of humanity. God looks at Adam and Eve and says, you are worthy of death and yet I'm going to kill something else on your behalf. And so he slaughters animals. And and the fact that they are covered with skin is representative of the fact that their sin has now been covered over. That God now has covered them with the blood of these animals. Even in the worst day of human history, God brings grace for Adam and Eve because he slaughters animals on their behalf. Because he has made a way to forgive them. Last few verses. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the, out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. 
this passage, oftentimes these few verses uh, are interpreted from a perspective of judgment. And in one sense, they certainly are. God throws them out of paradise. God casts them out of access to the tree of life. And yet God, I think, also does this as a gift to Adam and Eve. He knows the spiritual state of Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity. He knows that they are spiritually dead. He knows that they are living in darkness, that their hearts are hardened against God, that they are enslaved to sin, that they find themselves blind without any way to make up for it or to fix their situation on their own. And so God decides that the worst thing for them is to live forever in this state of separation from God. And so he takes the tree of life away, recognizing that to live forever apart from God is a state far worse than death. Taking away the tree of life is a sign of grace to his fallen creation. And these last few verses of Genesis 3 stand clear as a reminder that in the face of our rebellion, God offers us grace. In the face of our rebellion, God offers us grace. This is true for Adam and Eve thousands of years ago. It's true for us today, too, that whenever we reject God, whenever we turn our back on Him, whenever we dethrone Him and put ourselves in His position, God responds with grace. God offers grace to his creation. Really, that's, that's what Genesis 3 is, is telling us as we look at this passage as a whole. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. You are far more wicked than you could ever think. You are far more wicked than you think. We haven't begun to grasp the depths of the wickedness of our own hearts. And yet at the same time, you are far more loved than you could ever hope. You are far more loved than you could ever hope. We skipped over the, the best part of this chapter, and that's verse 15 when it says this. To the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the question here is, who is the offspring? Who is this passage talking about? It's Jesus. The enmity between the serpent and between humanity will one day come to an end, will one day be defeated because of Jesus. The final blow will be dealt to death on the cross. Already here in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of when things go wrong in God's creation, he is saying, I have a plan to fix this. I am going to go to the cross myself to make a way to renew all of my creation. In Genesis chapter 3, God atones for, makes up for the sin of Adam and Eve through the slaughtering of animals. But at the cross, God atones for or makes right our relationship with him through his own blood. You are far more wicked than you think. 
And yet you are far more loved than you could ever hope. Genesis 3 is a tragic and beautiful reminder of that. It reminds us of the wickedness of our hearts, and yet it also reminds us of the goodness of God. I mentioned that one author says that uh, sin is really just substituting ourselves for God. Really, salvation is God substituting himself for us. He's making a way for us that we are far more loved than we could ever hope. And this is truly good news. And it's all contained here in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. God, we just stand amazed at the grace that you offer us. We think of our own sin and, and just question how you would ever make a way or, or, or fix that. God, thank you. Pray that you would help us to grasp that truth, to hold on to that truth today, tomorrow, the next day, every day, God, that we would hold on to the truth, not only of our own wickedness, but of the great, wonderful, beautiful grace that you offer us on the cross. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.